0: Welcome to the Bike Portland Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Moss. Ever since I got seriously into cycling in my freshman year of college or so, I've loved hanging out at bike shops. My friends and I were huge shop rats back in the day. And as I record more of these Shop Talk episodes, I'm realizing just how much I've missed it. Getting to know and chat with people like my guest this week, Tom Martin of Tomcat Bikes on Southeast Milwaukee and Powell is a big reason why. So much of what we think of as local bike culture exists in and or comes from bike shops, and I believe they're a vital part of our cycling ecosystem. Tom Martin seems to embrace that responsibility. Uh, Since opening Tomcat bikes in 2019, after 35 years wearing many different hats in the bike industry, Tom's shop has become firmly established in the Brooklyn neighborhood. In this interview, you'll hear how friends helped him survive the COVID boom. Uh, You'll Learn why he's become the go-to shop for fans of Burning Man, Freak Bikes, and Tall Bikes. Find out why he thinks major shifts in the bike industry will actually help his business. Uh, You'll also learn why he thinks local bike theft shop shops, which he calls bicycle slaughterhouses, are tied to organized crime rings, and what it means to give a bike a soul. Here's our conversation. I'm so happy to be here in your shop, Tom. I was here when you first opened. Uh, and, and before we... Um, oh, so hi, by the way. Oh, hi. I'm Tom Martin from Tomcat Bikes. Awesome. Uh, before we sort of move to the more formal part of the conversation, uh, I don't know, show me around the shop a little bit. Looks like you've got the uh, the all Portland, all utilitarian Surly. So is that, that's a brand that you, you stock here in the yep. shop?
1: Yeah. I've had it for maybe two years or so. And uh, the Bridge Club is their least expensive, fully kitted a uh, bike out of a box, so it's a complete. I ordered these in April of 2020, and I got the last shipment in November of 2021.
0: Yeah, that looks like fun, the bridge club with the big sway bars and the big fat tires. Looks awesome, mm-hmm. especially with all the potholes uh, around here. And then what's this other brand here? You've got
1: Billoa? Builda, a- Builda Bike. Builda Bike. So I just call them by their uh, the model name. So this is the Jasmine, and then we have the Ravenels, which are their ah. like, entry-level road bikes. I've never seen this brand. This. This Jasmine one looks really cool. It's got the yeah, the step-through kind step, of frame. Step, looks step really through comfy. frame, uh entry-level component and price points. Um it's still quite a durable bike. Um two, three years ago I was carrying the Civia bikes, which are an I um QBP brand. Mm-hmm. And Civias were like five to six hundred bucks. This is about the same. Um, it's a steel frame instead of an aluminum frame. It's got very similar components.
0: What are um, what are people in Brooklyn finding that they like about these? This looks like a pretty good uh good local neighborhood cruiser
1: yeah uh it's a step through bike and finding step through bikes right now is kind of hard everyone's building gravel bikes because everyone wants to do gravel bikes so this is the anti-gravel bike you know it's step through it's a grandma bike it's a mom bike it gets you from point A to point B in leisure and style and um no muss no fuss you could put fenders on it you put a rack on it you put a basket on it and you know you've got your your townie bike
0: yeah you could you could take this on some pavement if you wanted to it's oh got yeah some nice thick what is that 26 by 700, or 700 C, by yep 700 by 40 tires Forty, yeah nice. so it's a
1: gravel tire
0: um mm-hmm. i'm looking at this wall here uh in front of your shelf wall in front of the window and i want to definitely talk to you about bike theft and how if that's impacting your business but is that a is that a theft deterrent so people don't have anything to stare at and get, get gets excited yeah. about
1: when they come by? It was part of that. Also, I needed to make more room for more stuff. That whole thing was made from uh, a bunch of art projects from a regional burn called Soak. And um, it was just leftover art that is now part of my shop and it's part of the history and culture of the shop and me and how I got my start here. I love that. That's a good segue into yeah, I love chatting.
0: It. <laughs> oh, anything else in the shop that people should see when they stop by?
1: uh all the random parts and all the random stuff like i'm probably one of the last few shops that have old frames that can be rebuilt and transformed into into their bike that they want and love cool so yeah people
0: come in with uh maybe an idea for a bike and they can grab something off the ceiling or wall and and you've got all the parts they can add to it including this really nice selection of colors of cable that that to me says this is a shop that does custom builds yeah (laughs) and fun stuff yeah i like that I always think it's fun to kind of like, you know, put more of a a face to the name, like Mm -hmm. who's Tom Martin? How did you end up in Portland owning a bike
1: shop? Well, I retired early from the bicycle industry in 2011 and I wanted to go back to school. So I moved to Portland because I always wanted to move to Portland. Like I had this dream somehow when I was a kid and I'm like, where did that come from? And I'm watching Schoolhouse Rock in one of my college classes, um, sociology class and there's the schoolhouse rock about the Oregon trail and there's that song and I'm like bam that hit me right when I was a kid and that's why I'm here (laughs) no joke that's how I got here (laughs) wow that goes
0: that goes way back that's that's pretty funny a lot of times a lot of times I'll hear about people coming here for like the bike scene or some other thing but the schoolhouse rock Oregon trail song that's first for me I
1: mean it's definitely bikes definitely were part of it for sure So what part of the world did you come from? I grew up in New York on Long Island and bounced to, lived in Oakland for 10 years where I did a lot of growing up and bounced to DC for three years and then moved here. And that's my life story. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Okay. Thanks for coming on the show. Tom
0: was really fun. No. Um, how did you find your way into like the bike industry specifically?
1: Hmm. I think working at bike shops, right? Um, Hmm. I worked at, I worked at Babylon Bike Shop when I was, I think I was 15 years old. Where's that? Is that a... Babylon, Long Island. Okay. Um, wow, was... 15 to now in a yeah. bike shop.
0: That's really cool. Okay.
1: And that, I don't think I was le- legal. And then at the end of the summer, they're like, we didn't realize you were that young. Uh, you can't come back. After I worked there for a summer at minimum wage and built a lot, of, a lot of bikes, a lot of Mongoose Decade Pros and old 10 speeds and stuff. So let's see. That was... Um... 70s 80s, 70s, 80s, like 86, 80s. 87, something like that. So, yeah. the,
0: so the sort of American bike boom was tapering off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were sort of getting BMX. excited about
1: road. BMX was coming in. At BMX was ending. Mountain bike was just starting its supremacy. Fun. And then 91, mountain biking exploded. Got a job working for Ross Bikes um, as warranty department. Schlepp. Really? Then a year, yeah, which was the worst job ever in the bike industry, working for Ross Bicycles and Rand international in the warranty department. <laughs> were people just beating up the bikes? Like Ross was one of the early players in mountain yeah. biking, right? Yeah, like they, in were terms pion- of- they were the pioneers of mountain bike racing. They had the first mountain production mountain bike. Why like- was it so bad? Were people like beating them up because they were trying to take them on mountains and they weren't ready, or what? Uh, I think it was part of that. Uh, I think it was lack of uh, supply, lack uh, lack of understanding from the owners of the the sh- of the brand of what ma- maintaining a bicycle brand is. Um, and no one in the industry really knew what that was. Maybe Schwinn, but Trek was beginning to get that. But all these other players, like Park Pre and Kona and everyone else, that they are now like sac- their brands in the bike industry, they didn't exist back then. So they were all just trying to figure it out. Um, and I was, what, 20 or 22 years old, and I had no idea what I was doing. It was a long, hard, like, in beginning of the industry, and I was super excited with bikes. I really loved what I was doing. Um, I had all these ideas. I was really in this space where I had this unique opportunity to like help the bicycles get better with with spec and control of uh, quality control and like using the information I got from warranty department from like broken wheels and bad spokes and and all this other stuff and like why are we specking this headset that doesn't work? Like why can't we spend another ten cents on a on headsets with bearings, and then the next production run, the the Taiwanese bike company is making better headset bearings. You know, and that was all due to because of me. Because I would take a box out of the warehouse and do an assembly and then take notes on it. Mm. And I would do that for every single container that came in.
0: That's really neat in your in your background, how you've got such a diverse type of experiences from like, I don't know what you would call that technically. I mean, I guess some people might think of that as like product manager stuff, but like, you know, that dealing between uh manufacturers and product people to i mean like more recently i noticed you worked at like bike town or you worked with bike town and you've you've worked at an e-bike related shop um so just like this really different all, all types of different uh, hats you've worn in in the biking world um h- how did you end up realizing I mean, a lot of people have that much of a run and they're i don't know ready to call it quits the bike the bike world can take a lot out of folks in, in some ways and you certainly don't get rich in the bike industry nope uh, so a lot of people <laughs> might have I don't know been done but you ended up sort of doubling down and um wanting to buy a shop and Mm -hmm. and and open a shop so how did how did that come about how did you or or like sort of why did you decide to buy a shop after
1: that really long and interesting career doing all those different things um I was at a really low point in my life and I literally had nothing left to lose because I had had nothing you had nothing left to lose right I was broke I was homeless I was going through a divorce. My dad died, my truck died, my cat died. Um, Lots of disillusionment, lots of um, disassociation with a lot of stuff. And like, I just wanted to do something. And I was, I came in here, talked to the previous owner, and I'm like, how did you start? I wanna know how you started because this seems like a very grassroots shop. And where do I go? Where are my steps? Because 10 years previous, Tom walked into Portland and was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just a short order cook. I'm just gonna open a bike shop. And he did. <laughs> and he did. Tom Daly book. We're talking about Tom Daly
0: was yes. his name, right? And yeah. it was WTF, well-tuned and fast yes. bike shops, which right. I always had to chuckle when I saw it, of course, because I thought it meant something else. But yes. so that's neat. So you actually I didn't I didn't realize that you actually had like conversations with Tom, and that's what kind of led to you yeah. taking the shop, and that's where you were coming from before you opened it. Mm-hmm. I mean uh, I can see now why you have mentioned that it's like your dream job Mm -hmm. and i don't know if when i read that quote from you if you were saying that like uh hopefully as you embarked on owning the shop or Mm. if you said that recently but like are you how has it gone so you know since you bought it
1: um it's gone far beyond what i ever could imagine even with covid huh because i mean
0: the year after you bought it this whole pandemic hit yeah it
1: must have shifted everything everything shifted um that first year 2018 to 19 was an indicator to me that like i can do this i can be successful at this i'm not going to make a million dollars but i can live and have um enough income to pay my bills and to be happy and that's all i want and need um and then COVID hit and the first two weeks was like what am i going to do because everyone picked up their bikes and the shop was empty And then one Tuesday morning, I wake up, at, I roll into the shop at 10 o'clock in the morning, and there's two people waiting outside with two bikes. And that didn't end for six months. And I was here every day from like 10 o'clock in the morning till 8 o'clock at night, seven days a week, because I didn't have a day off, because there were so many bikes coming through the shop. And when was that? What month was that when that started? April.
0: So right after the governor's thing, and people are like, okay, well... Might as well dust off that bike, and yeah. you're and you're solo, right? I mean, did that maybe solo. you had friends come in, or you yeah. pretty much handle that your own with some few guest mechanics. Yes, yeah, wow. Um,
1: five. It's like two day. How do I? So it's there's at least one person here a week, once a week, uh, and their friends and their guest mechanics. And how that started was in the middle of me in the middle of April, uh, hairs frazzled. Um, there's people coming at me with bikes and a couple of bike mechanics from other shops just came in to say hello and they were like holy crap dude what are you doing like they literally like took off their jacket and hopped in a stand and started talking to people and helping me and i didn't ask them wow <laughs> they just jumped in that's amazing I, didn't realize I, I couldn't do it myself and i didn't realize yeah. i couldn't do it myself
0: yeah so and, and it must have validated a lot of things for you including i'm thinking that like the value of just like a neighborhood shop mm-hmm. that's that's really like i mean we're adjacent to just tons and tons of residential mm-hmm. zoning and, and like neighborhoods so people don't have to i'm imagining a lot of your customers don't have to like pile in their car and drive somewhere and i think yeah. i'm assuming like the covid thing since my picture of it is that people just i was reminds reminds me of like bridge pedal or something and the people i send bridge pedal like they literally have walked by their bike hundreds of times and never gotten on it but then you know COVID hits and they're like, gosh, darn it, now's the time to dust this thing off and bring it in. I'm going to go take it to that shop I saw down the street. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking if your shop wasn't so really embedded in a neighborhood, you know, a lot of those people may not have rolled over so easily. But mm-hmm. is, that, is that true? Is like, is your shop really like a Brooklyn neighborhood place? Most of your customers coming from pretty close?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would say there's, I think, 3,500 people that live in the Brooklyn neighborhood. Um, was 800 households, 900 households. Um, that's probably more than half my business. Wow. Um, but I definitely am pulling from other communities, other neighborhoods. Um, and I don't want to say like, I don't want to say neighborhoods cause you know, there's 50 bike shops in this town, 60 bike shops in this town. And we are gracefully, gratefully and gracefully co- cooperative in what we do. Um, but I pull from, pedal palooza bike scene right mm-hmm. i know a lot of i have a lot of friends in that scene um burners and burning man like everyone comes to me for their ply bikes because they know it's going to be like good quality they're going to get it they're going to get their week of fun riding their bike for that event and that goes to other events and they come back with their, their with their other bikes um, and other communities are on top of that too you know i am i'm lgbtq friendly um that's uh left over from the previous shop I don't identify within that spectrum and range of sexualities, but the door is open. That matters, right? I, I was hanging out with some friends last night, and a person that I haven't seen, she's one of my first customers, and she told me she will only go to my shop because I'm the most low-key, the, the the least pressure, the least like bike shop dude vibe she's ever been to. And she grew up on the East Coast. She's been to a dozen shops in this town, and that was unique to her. And she'll always come here. Okay. Speaking of unique, you
0: mentioned the burner bikes, and I remember you saying that when I met you and you when you opened. How is that because you went to Burning Man a lot? Like that's just I love that. That's like a niche that you have. What does it mean to be like a burner bike expert? Does that mean that you just get their bikes ready, or are there, are there certain like aspects of having a good burner bike that like? That you know well or something like what what does that mean for folks that aren't familiar (laughs) with that
1: so burning man is a it's very very tough on everything generators cars bikes right and then the worst thing with bikes is they use it for a week and then they store it in their garage or on the side of their house for 51 weeks of the year and they bring it to a shop in august and they're like can you fix it and if they're not left out of the store they're like wrenches are thrown at them because it's not fixable um but I have a really plain conversation with them. I'm like, you left it outside for a year. It's rained on. It's Portland. It's terrible. We're replacing all these things. It's going to cost this much money. And you're going to have this bike for a week and you're going to have a great time. And that's how I'm able to make that work. And they, 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 they know I understand because I've been going to the burn since 2005. Um, I ran the Yellow Bike Project at Burning Man it's a 800 strong fleet of cruisers that are basically freely littering the um the plot, the uh, the event in the city and i ran that program for a year and i fixed 800 bikes and i got really good at coaster brakes and um replacing one piece crank bearings in like 3 seconds flat and making <laughs> hubs with square bearings <laughs> round again so i'm part of that culture i'm like I also taught a class about Burning Man at PSU. So awesome!
0: I uh, I worked for a, a pretty niche bike company back in the day, and I remember how eager the rest of the industry was to like pass people to us because like we were the only ones that knew about this really tiny <laughs> little part, right? Which was like basically putting racks on mountain bikes and stuff. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a very niche thing back then, and so I, it was it was neat because like tons of companies would like forward people to us because they didn't want to deal with it So the, the local shops. <laughs> Uh, forward you burner bikes and say "Oh, go talk to go oh, talk yeah. to Tom
1: <laughs> yeah when I first opened the shop there were people that were just like walking and saying I need to find this guy named Tom <laughs>
0: <You're> literally <laughs> the guy <laughs> that's funny
1: yeah um, I know that you're you're really like into the
0: the tall bikes and the freak bikes and all that mm-hmm. stuff and just in general um do you do you feel like that scene's kind of like vanished in a, in a way in Portland along with a lot of other things of, of Portland past yeah. uh, do you think that's that's how I see it but but I just talked to someone the other night who was on the there's a dead baby ride so it's still here but like mm-hmm. what do you think about that you're probably a little closer to it than i am
1: well i think the era of portlandia that can celebrate a shop called wtf um is long gone um and that whole culture of like freak bikes and the chunk crew chunk 666 i think it's definitely subdued right um, yeah not fully gone but not quite as dynamic as yeah, it used to be it isn't the driving force of a lot of things that we thought it would be yeah um and you know I changed the name from i changed the name of the shop because church moms and so I soccer moms and church ladies wouldn't buy a bike from a place called w t f they just wouldn't right,
0: and, and like you said, you have to serve this local neighborhood serves the a lot of a lot of church moms and
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know do I want to see more freak bikes out there and tall bikes? I totally do, and I want to cultivate that that scene and what I can do for them right and you know, I'm able to make really good bikes out of that. Like most of the tall bikes I worked on now have internally geared hubs and disc brakes, and it magically works on those bikes.
0: And they're, and they're less likely to kill someone by yeah. failing
1: catastrophically. Right. <laughs> and or... the derailers don't get jammed up because there's no
0: more derailleurs. Okay, you heard that, everybody. If you want to make your tall bike dreams come true, you've got a <laughs> good amount of time before Pedalpalooza to, to get rolling over here with Tom. It's, it's neat to me how you've done all these different things in the biking world, and, and you're in these different spaces. And I noticed that you're on the Bicycle Retailer Industry News, which for folks mm-hmm. that don't know is like the main trade paper trade uh, newspaper for the bike, biking mm-hmm. world, um, or at least the U.S. biking world. And, and Tom here has been named to their—they have the State of Retail panel, each issue, where they, they ask uh, retailers <laughs> from around the country different questions about retail. Anything in particular you're hoping you can get on those pages
1: when they ask you the questions there, Tom? I don't think it's a big deal that I'm on the list, but so many people think it's a big deal. I'm just very nonchalant about it. Maybe you can make it, it a
0: big deal. It could be. It could be up to you to
1: make it a big deal. <laughs> you I don't can bring know about some that. of that Portland flavor
0: onto the pages.
1: Oh, I do. I do. I mean, everything. I most of the thing, that I've been on two. Um, I've answered two questions. It's a monthly and monthly paper, right? Um, and each time it's been like service, service, service. Mm. That's how bike shops make money. Like you are your best brand, right? And these are all things that I got from my first um, uh, boss in the bike industry uh Niall Nims all right his last name is Nim his first name's Niall so we called him nihilisms <laughs> that's perfect yeah <laughs> he's gonna love this um but he always said like service is how bike shots make their money you know the the brand of the shop the shop is the brand not the not the bike that goes through it so the big rift in the, in the in the bike world right now is specialized is going direct to consumer they call something like rider direct instead of D- consumer direct because they rebrand everything um and a lot of shops are pissed off at that hmm. and they're saying oh my god we're we're losing millions of dollars a year and i'm like yes you are but you're going to regain millions of dollars a year because every single one of those bikes needs suspension tuning they need proper setup um the 80 percent of the people that are that buy the bike are going to come to a shop because they realize that's what they need. The 20% are going to screw it up and they're going to come back anyway and you're going to get those those service dollars anyway. It's a longer, it's a longer game than just selling a bike.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to ask you about that. There's these two big things happening in the bike world that I'm seeing. Number one, the consolidation where the big... The big brands, the Trek Specialized Giant, they're buying bike shops mm-hmm. and making them basically, you know, their own branded chain stores, whatever. Mm-hmm. That happened recently in a bike gallery, as folks probably know. But the other thing is, yeah, so after all these years of a few brands uh, that were going straight to consumers, essentially, so you could go to their website and buy one and not have to go to a dealer. So forever in the bike world, you had to go to a shop. And you know, even the big ones like Specialized and Trek would point you to your local shop. Everybody listening has probably been through that. But recently, uh, like Thomas saying, Specialized said that no longer is going to be the case. They're going to sell direct to consumers. So how does that? How do you think that's going to impact your business? You, you're, it sounds like you're going to be pretty happy with that because it's going to mean a lot more of those specialized bikes coming through the front door needing service that you're willing to provide.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I probably have three specialized bikes in the back that I need to get work on. Right? I have Surly bikes that need to get work on. I have an old Gary Fisher. Right? They're bikes, you know. With the exception of some really proprietary stuff with e-bikes, they're still bicycles, right? And even an e-bike is a bicycle. And you can fix it. I can fix it. And there's very few bikes I will refuse to work on. Um, And it's mostly because of safety and liability issues that they're so, so terrible that Mm. they're non-functional. And you don't even call them bikes. You just... I don't even call them bicycle shaped objects. I just call them replica bikes like guns. So are you, are you, are you, are you one of the people that are, is like would sign that petition to like no longer have
0: these manufacturers making yeah. those? Did you see that? The small, yeah. I think it's like small shops and co-op shops saying don't make these like, uh, uh, what's the best word? Like not department more store bikes. We used to call them toy bikes. That was before I sort of yeah. became more sensitive to the fact that like they're not toys for everyone. And like for some people, like that's actually a really important bike for them. And it has a lot of value and utility for a lot of people that yeah. aren't going to come into bike shops. And I totally get that. But
1: like, you would support you support that petition that's going around? I do because um, they're disposable. They're entirely disposable bikes they don't even function out of the box. They're basically scrap metal that you bought uh, pre-assembled. But people don't know that and it's like it's these manu- it's not even the manufacturers. maybe they are manufacturers, but they're just a, a warehousing space somewhere in like Carson California and they're just selling stuff and they don't, they don't pass CPSC re- regulations. They're a health and safety violation. Someone's going to get killed and there's nothing we can do about it, right? And some people are saying, you know, they, they see a bike on Amazon for $449 as an entry-level bike and they bring it to a shop and it costs 70 bucks for them to, you know, to assemble it. And it needs $300 worth of work to make safe because we are replacing parts. And then they're like, well, I'm making $800 for a bike now yes you are. Yeah, right. Or you can buy a bike for six and it's going to be better. Yeah. So it's a longer education. So I'm curious what kind of
0: people are are coming into your shop. Um, there's you, you especially since you're, you're sort of non, uh, what's, what's a good word? You're, um, non-discriminatory in the bikes you work on from, from burner bikes all the way up. I saw some really nice custom high-end stuff on your, on your website. Who are you seeing come in the shop? Is it mostly families? Is it mostly commuters or is it a mix?
1: I think it's a mix of, of people, definitely commuters. That's like the probably more than half my business.
0: Still, even with the pandemic, have, have, you, have you seen a shift with the commuter uh, biking c- customers with the pandemic? Has, they, has it gone away? Is it coming back? Like any sense of that?
1: I think they're using their bikes for different purposes. You know, the commuter bike is, a lot of times it's their only bike. It's their only last working bike. So that's what they use. And they use it for everything. And they use it to ride out to Banks-Renonia. They ride it out to, to Boring. They ride it to the bar. They ride it to the grocery store because they have no place to go now mm. and they need exercise. I think that was what was happening for the entirety of COVID. And now people are going back to work. They're going back to school. So they're reusing that bike and the bikes are definitely overused, right? It's a lot of deferred maintenance, are,
0: are you seeing any trends come into the shop? Like I know you've seen a lot of things come and go over your time in, uh, in, in the bike world. Are you seeing any trends worth noting that are coming into the shop? You seeing a ton of e-bikes, like anything like that mm-hmm. that comes to mind?
1: Um, I'm definitely getting more e-bike business um, for basic repairs and routine repairs and tune ups and stuff and annual maintenance. Um, I seem to, to be pushing things in some ways like mixed e-bikes I really like mixty bikes. I really like step-through bikes. I can tell
0: your Instagram has a bunch of beautiful mixties and step-throughs, yeah. which isn't like a normal, like a lot of shops don't necessarily feature those. Nope. Right. Some of the used bike shop, like maybe you see them at the community cycle center or something, but like, I'm, I'm with you, by the way, they're to me, just like, I just get so emotionally attached when I see a mixties or something about it. I've been to Paris yeah. and like, yeah. that's the bike there that everybody has. It's like the archetypal bike. And for good reason, they're so right. great
1: in the city. I'm seeing a few more people that are that like them because they see them as the utility that, that, that they're designed around. It's not for women to wear skirts on bikes. It's for people to ride bikes in cities that are laden with goods and, and packages and stuff. Because they're they're, they're they're cargo bikes. They're not girl bikes. Um, so I'm seeing a little bit more um, embracement of that in, in the U.S. bike industry. Uh, and I also have a, an Instagram just on mixty bikes oh you do yeah it's mixty bike i gotta check that out um and it's all mixty bikes
0: (laughs) okay you gotta describe mixty for people that that don't know i don't want to assume that folks know what we're talking about here so how do you describe
1: it so it's a bike with the top tube that's dropped down and the classic mixty is two uh, twin top tubes that go from the uh head tube where the handlebars are to the back of the dropouts where the wheel rear wheel attaches and it's like a big old zing that cuts the frame in half um and when you think of a if you think of a cute girl on a bike in France tr- cycling to their, you know, singing engagement with a bottle of wine in their basket, that's the bike they're riding. It's a mixty. Yeah,
0: and they also, like you said, they happen to be easy to step on and off, mm-hmm. and because of that design, they're, they're pretty good under a load yeah. and with, with, you know, panniers on them or whatever. And
1: the, the classic French mixties are low trail, which is low speed handling, and they handle better with more weight on the front or distributed weight throughout the bike. And that's what cargo bikes
0: are. Okay. Um. Next next week, I'm going to be talking to you know Brian Hans from Stolen Bike. Yeah. Uh, from sorry Brian. Hance. <laughs> you know Brian <laughs> bike Hance from uh, Bike Index. So yeah. next week, I'm going to be talking to Brian about bike theft. And I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, every every shop owner and shop person in Portland I've talked to over the years has been impacted by bike theft somehow. So like, what's yeah. your what's your piece on that? How has that impacted your business? Do you do things with like you know people that bring in bikes that you know you suspect might be stolen like Mm -hmm. what's your process and thinking around uh, the bike theft issue right now
1: well first off um most chop shops in this town have more inventory than bike shops and that is really aggravating to see driving to work every single day um okay
0: okay wait wait i want to i want to stop you because i have this debate a lot online Mm -hmm. uh and i'd love to hear kind of what you think about it as someone whose livelihood depends on the buying and selling of bikes so I try to caution people to not call them chop shops because we don't want to assume they're all stolen.
1: That's why I separate them from chop shops to homeless encampments because homeless encampments, there's, I have, I have a few customers that are clearly houseless. Um, they're struggling with a lot of things. They've got their bikes and they have, they have nice bikes. They're not stolen. They've dragged them from place to place and in and out of prison. They always have their karate monkey or their Azonic or whatever they've got. They've had it for ten years, and they're not stealing bikes. They're maintaining what they've got.
0: But you're talking about the the places you see where there's base, it looks like a factory assembly line going on with like frames that have been yeah. uh, already uh, doctored and like you know scrubbed off the brands yeah, and got them all lined up. That's what you're talking about in terms of shop
1: shops. It's like it's a bicycle slaughterhouse, right? It's a disassembly line. That's what they're doing. And they do it at 10 o'clock at night or 2 o'clock in the morning while we're sleeping. And nobody knows. And they're quiet in the daytime. So they're chop shops. I don't care.
0: Do you have any insights on kind of how that economy works? What do you think they're selling those to other people that are living on the street? Or do they end up on, on you know, uh, uh, falsely represented, like, eBay offer up Craigslist postings and they, to unsuspecting people who just yeah. think they got a killer deal? Like yeah. how does that, You probably see them roll into the
1: shop. You're yeah. like, uh, I think a lot, OfferUp is much more anonymous than, than Craigslist because Craigslist, you need an email address. Um, there's some kind of verification and identity. Um, if a bike shop is selling on Craigslist, you have to pay money for every post. Um, and they're verifying that. Um, OfferUp is not like that. You can post whatever you want, and it's pretty much a shark tank. So whatever you do post on there, someone's going to offer you half, and you got to live with it or not. Um, And also if it looks like it's in a hotel room it's probably a stolen bike you know it's really easy to 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 see what the background is to see what's in the background right if there's a tv next to a refrigerator (laughs) and a suitcase it's not someone's house so do you think
0: there's like these middle middle middlemen that are like taking them from yes yes, chop shops and thieves and going to that next level because i think a lot of people doing the processing Mm-hmm. aren't the ones that are like going to be able to buy a hotel room or drive a, maybe a truck full of them. So, right. What do you think that there's like this next level? And then,
1: yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's an economy. It's a black market economy. It is, um, you know, I, I also think it's organized crime, um, and organized crime can do big things with a lot of thing, big, big movements with a lot of stuff, whether it's legal or illegal. Um, and, you know, they work with cars, they work with human trafficking, they work with bikes, they work with gumball machines, they work, they work with whatever they can get their hands on, and they flip it. Um, and they find someone that's, like, just barely got their act together, that has a card that, with a credit card that works, they get a hotel for a couple nights, it's loaded up with stuff, and that's what they sell it out of. I always think there's maybe, like,
0: an I-5 corridor thing going on where they're being driven up and down, yeah. selling at the, the college towns
1: and the bigger cities mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. That, that's wow. the way it was in the, in the Bay area. Yeah. Like I recovered a couple of bikes, you know, had to go up to Santa Rosa when I was living in Oakland to get my, my ex's bike. Um, and bikes go up to Seattle, they go up to Bellingham, they go up to um, Tacoma, Boise, you know, it, it's really mobile mm. and yeah, we care about bikes, very much about bikes, but there's also laptops doing this. There's also cars, um, everything. And I really think it's organized crime. Um, And I think the encampments are, uh, and the chop shops are a part of that. Um, And they don't, I think we're deluding ourselves when we think the chop shops are using and exploiting the homeless people, the people that are mentally ill, the people that are really down on their luck. They're exploiting them for their own gain. And they're, it's, it's just,
0: it's saddening and horrific. I hear you. Okay, one last thing on this, then I'm going to move on because I want to end on a, on a on a happier note. Um, okay, a lot of times, I may be, I may give things the benefit of the doubt too much. I think it's one of the, f- maybe the, one of the faults in my personality and how they see the world, including this issue. Um, but if I see someone, I I'll grant you that the the outright chop shops that just have assembly line stuff. Okay, mm-hmm. great. That's we we should probably get someone in there and ask some questions and find out what the hell's going on. What what do you think it's plausible that there could be a bike shop like a bike economy among homeless people that's a totally legit economy because like right there could be like there could be the Tom Martin of Southeast and he supplies bikes for a lot of his friends that live on the street. Don't you think it's plausible that there might be some some guy or guys or people that are like the homeless campments like bike mechanic or bike person and that's who you go see to get a bike and maybe they're just working on several like some of us do in our garages or something or no is that am i being too naive when i when i think that
1: i want to believe that to be true um i'm not sure if it is i think there's a lot of horse trading um within that and maybe it is maybe there is this economy this sub economy a wholesale economy within you know the chop shop world i don't know anything about that okay um that's fair that's fair yeah okay I love how a couple of times I've seen you uh,
0: mention um, that you give bikes a soul. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of related to what we were talking about, because in a way, those, those chop shops in theft kind of rob bikes of their soul, I think, and they scratch them all down mm-hmm. and make them these anonymous commodities, which is so sad. Um,
1: so how do you give a bike a soul? What do you mean by that? <sighs> <laughs> That's a really good question. I think every mechanic, every shop has a certain signature or, and yeah. Uh, of how their bikes are built. Um and I also draw out what people want to do with the bike, what their personalities are. Um you know, like uh there's a woman person back here with a motor pecan that we went through 10 frames and they were like, "No, no, 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 yes, that one. That's the one I want. That's what I need. Can you do this?" I'm like, "Yeah, we can do that." And then it was a week of questions going back and forth and really really specific what they wanted building it up right now um and they're gonna love it i think a lot of shops won't do that they won't go through that process they won't have that kind of conversation and granularity with component spec on a bike that's going to under seven thousand dollars right you know you know if you're spending if you're buying a, a gravel titanium bike with like custom-made wheels and it's a ten thousand dollar bill it's like they're they're not customers they're benefactors right Um, because they're putting so much money and so much thought into it and you're just this channel for that but this old motor pecan has more of a soul to it because it is older it's refurbished it has a life i keep all the stickers on it um, i just shine it up um, compound it wax it you know polish it make it as new as i can with modern parts and vintage parts that are functional and you ask them what they're gonna do with it and it breathes life into this bike again that either, you know, somehow it caught to me. I don't know how it got to me sometimes, um, but there's always, a history, there's always a story to it and that's their soul and they need to go on to a new life. I give bikes a soul. Cool,
0: Tom. And I'll, I'll let you go get to this guy at the door who needs a oh. needs a flat fix. Yeah, It for... might be already gone. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for talking, I really appreciate it. Yeah,
1: yeah thanks again. That was Tomcat Bikes
0: owner, Tom Martin. If you like this episode, browse the archives for more Shop Talk episodes, and be sure to leave us a review and a rating. Be sure to check our show notes for links and resources mentioned in this episode. The Bike Portland Podcast is a production of Pedaltown Media Incorporated and is made possible by listeners just like you. If you're not a subscriber yet, please become one today at bikeportland.org support. You can listen to more episodes and find out how to subscribe at bikeportland.org/podcast. Our theme music is by Kevin Hartnell, and I'm your host, Jonathan Moss. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the streets.